want to spend one more week with the ending and uh, mainly talk about uh, 13 to 16, but we'll, I want to go ahead and read the whole thing. Um, as we come to the end of the epistle, he does a similar thing here that he does, that John does in the gospel. There is a summary purpose statement. He says, the letter was written that you may know that you have eternal life. Uh, the gospel, the summary purpose statement. Therefore, welcome, welcome. Good to see you. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I just read the, the end of the gospel and comparing it to the end of the epistle. It's a kind of interesting comparison. So, this is John Stott. He says, the gospel was written for unbelievers. John says that they might read the testimony of God uh, through his son and believe in him to whom the testimony pointed, and thus receive life through faith. But when we come to the letter, it's written for believers, and John's desire for them is not that they may believe and receive, but rather the presumption is that they've already believed, and that they may, may know that they have received, and therefore must uh, or continue to have eternal life, and eternal life in a present tense. And this is the thing I'm going to focus on here, is the, the notion of eternal life. Um, he says that you may now know means both, you know, not that they're going to gradually grow in this knowledge or assurance, but they possess it now. It's a present certainty. Now that was just interesting at the end of John. He, he uses the phrase, we know again and again. We know that he hears us. We know that we have the requests. We know that no, that no one who's born of God sins. We know that we are of God. We know that the Son of God has come. We know him who is true. Uh, any reason why he might be uh, focused on knowing and this kind of knowing as we come to the end of this epistle? Talking about types of knowledge, relating it to proto-gnosticism? Right, I think that's it. That he's, he's saying these proto-gnostics, the false teachers, uh, they claim to have a, a knowing. And they claim uh, that their knowing is on, you know, we can presume when John says the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. I think both things are involved. That is, they're claiming life within themselves, this is actually, you know, you could do, do Descartes here, actually, that how do you know? Well, I know on the basis of the life I have in myself. And it's already a kind of a visual mind's eye sort of thing. He's really doing a takeoff of Plato, that it's all the mind's eye. I think that's not just Descartes or Plato. I think that's a picture, an archetype of fallen knowing. What John is describing as knowing is then a complete departure from that sort of knowing. Uh, the the verse here for whatever is born of God, you know, he's talking about over the new birth or born of God. He's already said in uh, verse four above that you know whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. And I. As we pass through Easter, but not just that, as we're coming to the end of John, you know, the victory that overcomes the world in any other place in the Bible, I think we would link it to the resurrection, right? I think we should link it here, too, to the resurrection, though it is not explicitly in John. But let me say that it's implicitly throughout the epistle. Uh, that the resurrection is so thoroughly part of the faith. You know, when we say the faith, Paul 
is going to define faith as the you know inclusive of the preaching of you know the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. I think John means the same thing. In the very beginning of the gospel, you know, we can go back and we can read. I'm not going to reread the whole thing, but there are key places that we can reread and think resurrection, maybe where we didn't originally. So let me read just John 1, 1 to 4. Think resurrection as I'm reading it. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. I'm going to, at the end of this, point to specific places in the Gospel of John where that's literally what happened. And the language that John is using in the epistle ties directly to the resurrection appearances in the gospel. This is, you know, this is, throughout this epistle, we've been comparing it to the gospel and kind of using the gospel to fill in the background. And I think especially here at the end uh, that this is true. I mean, I, I don't need to tell you the answer to this one, but who touched him with their hands? Well, in a sense, that's the, the picture of doubting Thomas, you know, at the end, but but they've all, and he says, the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. When did they understand the eternality of the life of Christ? I think they understood it retroactively through the resurrection. In other words, as you read John, what John is doing theologically is reading, you know, it's a very different reading than the synoptics because he's giving us a theological interpretation in which the presumptions of resurrection and, you know, that come at the end are already there at the beginning. But the resurrection is the lens uh, that we understand what this light, this life is. We have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life. This is the way John begins, and this is the way John ends the epistle, which was with the Father and was manifest to us. And we have seen and heard and we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. What is the basis of the fellowship? And this is Alex's talk, you know. The basis of the fellowship is the body of Christ, but when we say body of Christ, don't think dead body. Think resurrected body, Right? So I think we we tend to leave the resurrection out of our fellowship meal and our fellowship. No, it's all about the resurrection. So that you too may have fellowship with us. You know, think here of Paul's picture in Corinthians and elsewhere, how the whole body, you know, is joined together through the head. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. That's the opening of the gospel. And the opening, you know, in one four, that's kind of one bookend. The other end bookend, you know, he says, How is you know, how is your joy made complete? By knowing eternal life, right? Uh, what is eternal life? Well, I think it is resurrection life, and he's he's tied it in. If we leave resurrection out of this we're going to miss the nature of the joy of the eternal life that he's talking about. So it links you know, back to uh, verse 18. Those born of God do not sin. Well, he's already talked about that in 3, 4 to 8. Uh, you know, that, and I think if we, if we get this part right, here in the ending of the book, we've got this strange verse. The sin that leads to death. I don't think we need to mystify that too much if we understand that what he's talking about is in contrast, you know, the life, the eternal life is in contrast to the sin that leads to death. So if we understand that those born of God, which comes right before this, those who experience eternal life or resurrection life do not sin so that it leads to death, right? He's described throughout the book the sin that leads to death. The entire epistle is about deadly sin, uh, and uh, about you know the the powers of this world. That Christ has come to defeat Satan. John says explicitly. 
So he says in 3, 4 to 8, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. So why did he come? to take? A, he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. So, and then he talks about, you know, little children, do not be deceived. Uh, the one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So the Son of God has pe- appeared to destroy the works of the devil. So all of this links, I think, to 5.4. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Uh, the resurrection, of course, is the final you know, overcoming of the world. It's the culmination of the incarnation in, the, in that it makes the embodied Jesus... Uh, I'm going to say a phrase here and I'll explain it. The embodied Jesus is the resurrected, ascended Jesus, right? Jesus' incarnation does not end, but the idea is the resurrection is a continuation of the incarnation. Embodiment, incarnation, and resurrection is now a fact about who Jesus is. So the fact that the world is under the control of the evil one links to the idea, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and I think this phrase is a direct pointer back to Genesis. I've said this several times that I think the Gnostic uh, problem is the prototype of the fallen problem that is characterized then by a kind of visual uh, metaphor, pride, boastful pride of life, lust, lust of the eyes. That gets at the false teachers here. What are they saying? They don't need resurrection, right? In fact, resurrection speaks of, uh, you know, it's like any pagan religion. Uh, you don't want resurrection if you're a Hindu. You don't want resurrection if you're a Buddhist. You don't want resurrection if you're a Gnostic. Resurrection is not good news, it's bad news. Because it's a continuation of enfleshment, and enfleshment, the material world is seen as bad. And so the boastful pride of life is in some way, I think, the idea that we have life apart from God and apart from the body of Christ. Resurrection means we have life only in and through the resurrected body of Christ. Um, the he says at the, the end of that phrase, but the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. So those who boast in their life do not have life, but have that, the sin that leads to death. Uh, and resurrection life is synonymous then with this eternal life that he's talking about. Um, John uses, and I'm, I'm going to do a little uh, trail here, but I think it's an interesting rabbit trail if you'll if you're willing to hop down this trail with me. Um, he begins the book, what we have was from the beginning, what we have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we've looked at. Uh, they've encountered the resurrected Jesus, which is an understanding taken up in the entire experience of Jesus. Uh, and he says, uh, in 1, 1 to 3, this life was manifested, proclaimed, you know, eternal life, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Fellowship is on the basis of resurrection. Uh, it's, uh, it is, you know, the picture of putting on the death and resurrection of Christ in baptism. That's where we gain in eternal life. Uh, in 4, 2 to 3, uh, he's talked about the false teachers. He uses a phrase. This is my rabbit trail. Christ has come in the flesh and is from God. He's going to use this phrase. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Uh, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus is not from God. He uses the word come in the flesh again and again. 
this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you've also heard that is coming. Um, that uh, Christ, you know, in four twos, come in the flesh. And so when it, uh, if you go to the Gospel of John, this is a phrase that is used in the three resurrection scenes in John. In John twenty nineteen, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut, the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Uh, Jesus came and stood in their midst. Uh, first resurrection appearance. At this resurrection appearance, Thomas was not there. Second resurrection appearance in John twenty twenty four to twenty five. It sums it up, but Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. I'm linking this phrase, Jesus came, specifically to the resurrection appearances. I don't mean that it's tied specifically only to that, but I think that it is certainly inclusive and perhaps a direct pointer to the resurrection appearances as John uses them. I'm referencing here a book by a guy named Matthew Jensen. He's written his doctoral dissertation on this. He says the verb occurs again in the second resurrection appearance and is used to summarize the whole first resurrection appearance. Uh, And then, you know, at the end of that, there's where Thomas says, well, unless I see him, unless I touch the wound, I think that that may be a specific reference in John that we handled him the one who was the word of life. The third resurrection appearance, there's four actually. Jesus came when Thomas was there and the doors having been shut and he says, peace be with you. And then in 21, 13 to 14, Jesus came. This is the, you remember on the beach uh, where uh, he appears, you know, to the, as they're fishing, it says Jesus came and took the bread. So the word is used specifically by John to re- reference the resurrection. The, throughout scripture, you know, the, the synoptics use the same phrase. Uh, that it leads, as this is, uh, the, if you go to the TDNT, it says this leads us to the very heart of the early Christian message. They speak of Jesus, the, the Messiah, of the nature of his appearing of the position of men in relation to him. So the TDNT does a whole article on the the Greek word here. It's Jesus has come, and you know, using it that it's a, a it takes on a very specific meaning. He says the word belongs to the circle of ideas connected with divine epiphany, to the resurrection appearances, but also the appearing of God. They derive from who, you know, Jesus himself will talk about his coming to proclaim the kingdom, his coming to call sinners to repentance. Jesus realizes that he has come to seek and save that which is lost. He's come to ransom the many. Even the demons talk about that the purpose of his coming is for their own destruction in the synoptics. And so the eschatological coming of the kingdom, there's also this future, the kingdom is coming. What's the last phrase in the book of Revelation, do you know? Lord come, Maranatha, you know. Uh, It is a phrase that's there in the synoptics, but it's especially significant, significant that Christ, they were looking for the coming Messiah, he's come and he's coming again. And that's there in this phrase that we have uh, in John that I think then is a direct pointer to the resurrection. Uh, So uh, Jesus cried out in the temple saying, You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself. But he who sent me is true whom you do not know. I am from him. John 8.42, Jesus said, If God were your father you would love me for I proceeded I came forth and have come from God so I have not even come of my own initiative Uh, John 10 10 uh, you know he's come to bring light uh, to a dead world Uh, let me get it I got a T here sorry 
um, the he in John in John twelve forty fourteen seven, the Johannine Christ has a single goal, namely the deliverance of the cosmos from the <laughs> destruction of alienation from God. Um, we know where this man is from in John seven twenty seven. This is the Messiah. The Jews were looking for the coming Messiah. But their point is, we don't know where he comes from. We're not, but we know where this man comes from. Jesus is countering that and says, "You don't know where I come from. I come from my Father. Uh, uh, you, you say you know both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but He who sent me is true." Um, so the messianic claim of Jesus, uh, even. You know, supported by the witness, he says that he was not the light, or, or rather, uh, he's come to the testify to the light. John says about himself, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which was coming into the world. So the, the coming of the risen Lord in John's gospel uh, is, in a sense, there, I think, in the phrase again and again that. Uh, even prior to the resurrection, I think it culminates in that this is the purpose of his coming. Uh, He says, you know, to Thomas, to the disciples, including Thomas, to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, uh, and then in Revelation, you know. So it's a phrase that in John, and throughout Revelation, I'm just referencing quickly here at the end, the idea of coming. The false teachers are claiming that the ordinary Christians do not know properly. That is, they are arguing for a different, you know, as Alex said, a different system of knowing. They would attain to a disincarnate life, not resurrection life. In, you know, disincarnate stands over and against resurrection. And so John's purpose is to establish their assurance, or our assurance as readers of the book also, our confidence, this letter is to assure you that you have eternal life. Jesus has already said this, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes me who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. Uh, So I think that there is a kind of formula here, a kind of saying that's summing up John's purposes. So if you put together the purposes of the gospel and the letter, it, you could go in a multi-step way. John's purpose is that his readers may hear, hearing they may believe, believing they may live, and living they may know. And this living and knowing is on the basis of the resurrection and is in a participation in the resurrection. Uh he says, I delivered you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, oh, this is Paul, I'm sorry, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What I'm saying here is I think that when Paul says this is the gospel that we all preached, I think we find the same gospel in John. And what the false teachers would do is reverse the order of John, you know, John's believing, hearing, believing, you know, uh, they're going to say, knowing does not come last, but it comes first. They want a direct knowing, a first order experience. Not, you know, one does not know on the basis of the eternal life or the resurrection of Jesus. One knows as a part of this world. This is, again, our apologetic problem. How do you know? And what do you know? Well, if we presume to know on the basis of the, our given frame of reference in this world, I'm afraid we're starting where the false teachers start. That's what they're saying. We can know on the basis of something other than the resurrected Jesus. I think as Christians, when we talk about Jesus being the foundation of our knowing, that it works this in this sense, that we hear, we believe, we have life, and then we know. Knowing is the last in this series. Uh, so I think this is, you know, it's not simply modernity that would put knowing first. Knowing is the foundation. 
in the idea that we can carry on the basis of our life, you know, uh, on the basis of this knowing. I think uh, is is really their point of departure too. I know I you know we don't know what the whether it was an experiential knowing or what exactly it was, but Christian knowing. This is the title of this section. This is partly why I like the English Standard Version. It entitles it, you know, Knowing Christ. What is the, what is the title there? Uh, that you may know. That you may know. So Christian knowing is on the basis of bodily resurrection. And the bodily resurrection makes of the afterlife and of present salvation a fact on the order of your present embodiment. I am the resurrection and the life. Christ Jesus abolished death, Paul says in 1 Timothy, and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That's very Johannine in, in his understanding. So the conclusion, this is my last thought here. The oldest manuscripts actually read here in John, 1 John 5.11, uh, or 5.12. These things have I written unto you, that you may know that ye have eternal life. And they leave out that believe on the name of the Son of God. Because actually that's presumed. Uh, those of you who believe on the name of the Son of God, uh, not that you may believe, but you do believe. Uh, that you may continue to believe is perhaps the idea. So the gospel was written, this epistle was written that you might believe, and now believing, this provides the basis for knowing, and the, the knowing is you know you have eternal life. This should be, uh, this should be very uh, confident building, assurance building. We know this thing on the basis, understanding how we got here. Okay, maybe that was long-winded, but any comments, questions? Before we when you say again the the order of or maybe it's in a verse but I don't know it is hearing hearing believe yeah so that you may hear you may be hearing you may believe believing you may live and living you may know so if we divide it up what's the gospel the gospel is that you're hearing and hearing you may believe the epistle is well believing you may live and living you may know well I mean the living is there in the gospel too uh, but this book is written I think as he says for the joy of knowing eternal life our Gnostic tendencies are going to take away the joy of the Christian life and we all have Gnostic tendencies. I think that's just the human tendency. I didn't do the slide in here, but in here somewhere, you know, when he talks about the, that uh, Jesus compares himself to John and why he's come. And J Jesus talks about a fully enjoying, you know, the, 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 this world. As a, over and opposed to John the Baptist, who was sort of an ascetic. But Jesus fully engages, and I think when we talk about the incarnation, you know, he, they called him a glutton and a wine-bibber. He liked friends, he liked fellowship, he liked food, he liked wine. He was incarnate. And that incarnate joy, I think, is one that's fully realized only in the recognition that it is the resurrected, you know, the resurrection is an embodied uh, fullness of, you know, it's, a, it's the completion, the recreation of this world. Uh, not, a, not an obliteration. Uh, Sharon, you want to read uh, verse 13? Yeah. I write these things to you, oh wait, Yes, that's what it says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Why do you write? He wrote that you may know. What are the Gnostics doing? They're trying to disturb their knowing. They're trying to disturb their... and say, no, you guys don't really know at all. 
you got to have the secret thing going. You got to have uh, an ecstatic knowledge. Um, and so, uh, the style here, you know, is John. It's clearly Johannine. But it's also, I think, we, we have to continually have in, in mind what he's writing to, to correct. And so I think he's using the language of gnosis. We have gnosis as Christians, but it's a gnosis on the basis of believing, on the basis of faith. And Chris, you want to do 14? And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that we ask anything, every, that if we ask anything going to his will, he hears us. Uh, that we have this great, you know, uh, confidence. We know and we can have confidence uh, that uh, our prayers are heard by him. It's interesting that praying always works in at this point. Um, you know, that this is Romans chapter 8, full of a deep prayer that is a kind of, uh, you know, a picture of being able to have uh, full confidence that, as the writer of Hebrews says, that we've entered into the very presence of God. Um, now, the, the uh, addendum here is, if we ask anything according to his will, and maybe, you know, we could discuss this, but I think the idea is that our characters have been shaped in such a way that our prayers are reflective, then, of his will. It's interesting in the Gospel of John, especially towards the end, like, or in his high priestly prayer is really what I'm thinking of. He says multiple times, if you ask in my name, in the will of, or my will, it will be granted to you. It seems to be pretty common that John has that language. I don't really know what it means, but it's there a lot. What does it mean, Jake? the reason why we always pray in Jesus' name. <laughs> Amen. So they'll get answered. <laughs> it's a safety net. Yeah. I guess the formula is pointing to the theoretical reality that if we can ask it in the name of Jesus, it should be accomplished. Yeah. Or that it will at least be heard. Be heard. With Jesus being our mediator, yeah. I think maybe that's a bad application. Yeah, <laughs> I think that was good. <laughs> he said that's what we do. You're right, dear right. Jesus. One of the main, I mean, the Lord's Prayer, as you put it, the actually the Lord's Prayer is later than John 15, but. The Lord's Prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, he says, you know, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So again, it's the language of coming kingdom. That's that's the part I left out of this. That um, the uh, the language of the coming of Christ, his coming has occurred and will occur, and we're kind of in between, right? And so the praying is, uh, I think, we're in the middle, you know, we're now on the other side of the Lord's Prayer, but we're also coming that this kingdom would be established and that its reign uh, would would be, you know, full reign of God. And it really just comes down to the mission of God. Run that down for us. The mission of God. <laughs> God created the the that God is in order to, it's not that we are missionaries that God is sending out but that God is on mission and we participate in that mission is that was that the idea something on that order yeah that makes sense because 
we tend to think that there's a harvest, but we tend to forget that it's His harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest. And He's the one that sends out workers. Rather than thinking that, oh, we, we're going out to do God's will or something. And I think that's an arrogant kind of a position. Yeah, that, that arrogance in doing this thing shouldn't go together. Uh, yeah, I could think of all sorts of bad things to say at this point. <laughs> How we get the mission wrong. And, and uh, uh, well, I won't say those bad things. Yeah, don't do it. Okay, thank you for, for warding, warding me off. <laughs> Evan, you want to do 15? And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have requests that we have asked of him. We have the requests that we have asked of him. Run that down for us, Evan, because I need help. Wait a minute. <laughs> I, I confused myself. Hold on. I know the first part. I understand the first part. We know that he hears us in whatever we ask. We're being heard. The requests which he which we have asked of him. I'm confused. <laughs> That's weird wording. Somebody got a different translation? May not help. Well, you print it out. <laughs> <laughs> I turned it off. Uh, well, everybody's got the same one. Maisie's got a different one. Well, it says the same thing now. Oh, okay. But I don't know if... Um, Mm-hmm. It sounds like we're saying it's saying the same thing as verse fourteen. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think you're right. He hears us, and so we'll get whatever we ask. So maybe fifteen is the these things these requests have been made. We've asked him. And in some way, even if there is not a, an immediate resolution to the prayer, the prayers stand before God. So, you know, we pray your kingdom come. Well, it's coming, but it's not come in its fullness. There's a, um, a lot of times we talk about, hold on, we got to find this so that I know. Uh, okay. Um, so, a lot of times we talk about like belief and like what 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 really believing is, um, or like being a being a doer of the word and, and like all this all this stuff and like how believing um, like is inclusive of action and all that, and uh, it's more than just the head, you know, and that kind of goes against the 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 Gnostic thing that John's hitting at. And then uh, in Matthew twenty one twenty two it says, if you believe you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And so like I think it kind of hits it like the same idea that like if you like if you're really like in the belief, like if you're if you're not just, you know, saying, Oh yeah, you know, Jesus is the Christ but I'd I'd sure like to you know, have this thing on my big toe healed, or, or I'd sure like to have uh, all my debt taken away, so I'm going to pray, you know, for that, or whatever, like, I don't know what, what you're praying for, but, like, if you're really believing, like, if you're really in the, in the, in the faith that we're talking about, your will is going to be more conforming to God's will, and so, like, if you're, if you're praying, you're going to receive it, like, if it's according to the will of God, it might not be immediate. Um, it might take a long time, you know, but, uh, and you might not even see the effects of it. You know, you might not even see the answer to that prayer, um, or you might miss it or whatever, but like, I think that kind of hits it, kind of the same idea. Um, I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah. (laughs) Well, no, there is great comfort to be had here if we can get it. Yeah. Occasionally I get it, but, but we lose it quickly. You know, living below the poverty level has taught me to have great confidence in, you know, the provision that God brings. And he does. I'm always amazed. Um, 
so uh, in a sense, uh, this is a terrible thing, so I won't say it. Well, our impoverishment has cast us into the arms of Jesus. But maybe that's what we all need, you know, is to realize that we're impoverished and that the only place that we can have riches, uh, true comfort, true security, is in uh, the, the confidence that we have in God. I'm not sure that the other security is a real kind of security because it's all going to fall apart eventually. No matter how good your health insurance. Faith does do a good job. <laughs> yes, she does. We can never use our health insurance. Do we have it? All right, let's try verse 16. Isaac, would you care to read uh, verse 16? Yeah. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. This is, this is a, we could make a great mystery of this, uh, but let's not do that. I don't, I don't think that we need to divide it up into the venial sins and the mortal sins. And, um, you know, there, there, a, a reading of John that I think is a legitimate understanding that we, I've not really talked about. And that is that it's here in John like it is in Paul, but that to be uh, part of Israel, to be part of the kingdom, is to be saved. Uh, that's kind of an underlying theme throughout the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, once you're outside of Israel, or in terms of the New Testament, once you have fallen away from the body of Christ, once you have become part of this devil-controlled world that John is talking about, I think that's the death that he's talking about. And so to be born again is to not sin in that fashion. The sin that leads to death is the sinning that leads to death. I don't think it really matters what particular sin it might be. Mm-hmm. I heard today at playing racquetball, see we do positive things playing racquetball, a local dentist killed himself last week, uh, overdosed on drugs. Oh, he was committing suicide. Uh, and the preacher preaching the message, I don't know if it was at the Baptist church, the guy telling me stories, Baptist. He said the preacher got up and said, uh, there is no forgiveness for suicide. And just kept harping on this at the funeral. Oh, it's terrible. I'm laughing because it's terrible. You know, just awful. uh, I don't think there is such a thing as a singular sin. In other words, I don't think that's what John's talking about. I think what he's talking about is what he's been talking about throughout the book or what the Bible talks about. That salvation is to be joined to the people of God. The fellowship, you know, that's the language that John is using. And so to have life is to be joined to this life-giving body. Um, And death, then, uh, is to cut oneself off from that. And so we can see people who may be cutting themselves off from the body of Christ, and we can pray for them. And we can call them back to the fellowship. But sometimes it it's too much. They've gone too far and they've cut themselves off. And so that sinning that leads to death, I think, is then uh, the the picture that John has pictured of, of you know, it's actually, he, he may be talking about apostasy. He may be talking about what the false teachers are doing. But I don't think it's any great mystery. It's to cut yourself off then from the resurrected body of Christ. Any other comments there, though? We should pray for one another, and we should, you know, when we we sh- we need to strengthen one another, and and this is the content of our prayer life. Rightfully so, is uh, that we hold one another up in prayer. And then, uh, Jake, you want to do verse seventeen? 
All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Uh, that we're all going to sin, John says. But if you sin, in the in other words, if you continue, and the idea is it's a continuous, progressive thing. That you know, anyone who sins uh, is of the devil. But if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. Uh, <laughs> so we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna have sin, and we need to recognize it. But eventually, you can see this thing. I, and I'm I'm enough of a sinner that I understand how it works. That um, as you sin, believing and participating in the body of Christ comes to seem less and less important. I think believing becomes more and more difficult. Uh, It becomes, uh, eventually the whole thing seems irrelevant if you sin enough. See how much sin I've done uh, that I, you know. I think we're all familiar with this, right? All right, uh, verse 18, uh, Alex. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So I think this verse gets it, and again, the ESV is good in this instance. But anyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That this is not your lifestyle. This is not a continuous thing. Is this a hard thing to say? I don't well, know. I would think when we're praying for those, and because he's talked about confessing sin, and um, when it says, He shall ask that God will give give life to those who commit sin not leading to death so I would assume that that you know the restoration and the confession and the restoration among the the people as part of that life so that would be the sin that you would pray for like repentance and an acceptance and a maturity you know and so I think you know, participating in his body and being in that kind of environment where there's like exposure yet acceptance, you know? But sometimes like just praying, you know, maybe that person can come to a realization of themselves and their, you know, body of people surrounding them. And I don't think you could continue in sin in that kind of atmosphere, that kind of acceptance. That your your association with people in the body of Christ and to continue sinning are juxtaposed. Yeah, I think you couldn't live in that kind of dishonesty. You'd you'd have to be like two different, or you would just separate yourself because you can't, you know. And maybe that's the danger of a real fellowship. It keeps us, I mean, well, I said that wrong. Maybe that's the blessing of a real fellowship. But if you're a sinner, a hardened sinner, you you really don't want that kind of fellowship. In fact, it would be better to just kind of have fellowship light. That you can just go and, you know, do your religious thing on Sunday. Keep it light. Don't get personal. Some people, you know, like, I just had a similar conversation this week. It's like I they just describe that as a personality, you know. So I guess it's their personality they don't really open up to people, just kind of keep to themselves. You know, they would never think to associate that with sin. You know what I mean? Right. And you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they don't know what they're missing in some ways. But Let me state it in a negative way and then you all can correct me. That a church that is devoid of true fellowship breeds hardened sinners. Wow. 
There you go. I don't think we can agree on that. Something like that. Whenever I was growing up, he'd talk with me about who do you think is worse—a Christian who thinks he's saved but isn't, or an unbeliever who hates God and he's loud about it. And his thing was the unbeliever who vocally hates God is closer to him than the believer who doesn't know him. Maybe a better way of what's saying of what you were trying to say is that having a fellowship protects us from becoming hardened sinners. Thank you, Sharon. That's a different way. It sounds yeah. a little different. That's softer and more gentle. <laughs> and Maybe more biblical. <laughs> Life church makes hearts. Life church makes hearts. Yeah, that's a tweet. You should send that out. That's our next t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Church light. Designs by Jake. Yeah. <laughs> no war. Yeah. You wear that shirt every Tuesday. <laughs> All right. Well, the, the, the ver- I mean, it is appropriate to talk about that. He, the one who is born of God, he protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. I think we're not talking about a mystical spirituality here because if you're born of God, you're protected. He's already talked about the fellowship uh, and uh, that it is a, an obvious thing of who's in and who's out. That sounds like Huh? Nothing. Oh. <laughs> where have it? He asked me about my shirt. No. I said, where are our shirts? Oh. All right, verse 19, uh, Michael. <laughs> we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil John is, you know, he, he writes in uh, stark contrast. We know where we're from, and we know them other people of the devil, the evil one. I mean, that's the way he talks, right? Shouldn't we talk the same way? <laughs> I don't get a very much agreement. <laughs> you got your people of the devil, and you got your people that are not of the devil. When you're an apostle, you can say that. <laughs> That's true, yes. How old at this point? I think that. that the gift, the John, and the what the New Testament is saying, we we do have to be able to name the idols, and we do have to say what's evil. Mm-hmm. And if you can't if you can't describe the idols, you don't know how they function. I'm suspicious you're worshiping one, <laughs> right? Uh, if you don't know what how this world is given over to the evil one then I'm suspicious that you have been co-opted by the world. You've been subsumed by the powers. Uh, if you can't tell the difference between a, you know, a Christian and a non-Christian, it's very questionable uh, that the Christian is living as he's describing it, knowing that we are from God and distinguishing then uh, the evil powers. Now, behind, I think behind all this is just obvious things. That the, the church given over to nationalism, the church you know, given over to worship of Mars, the god of violence, the god of war, the church given over to you know, the, the culture uh, is not the church. I'm sorry, I'm being harsh. Say it in a gentler way. Somebody rescue me from my harshness. Okay, we'll read the next verse. All right. Uh, let's see. Uh, did we get to faith? Verse 20? She was ready to read. I'm reading it. Okay, I'm reading verse 20. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. Keeps going. What, finish it? 
You're going to read the whole verse. Oh, I'm sorry. And we are in Him who is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is a true God and eternal life. Uh, well, maybe we don't need to say much, but this is, again, the language of John here. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The truth is, is the truth over and against a lie. Right? The, the, you got to get the sharp contrast to understand the nature in which Christ is true. And throughout John, he's described the lie of the devil. He's a deceiver. And the truth, which is Christ, the darkness and the light. Uh, if you do not, in other words, Jesus isn't another relevant truth on the order of H2O is water. But he's a truth on the order of uh, that we've been deceived by a lie. And he exposes the lie through the truth and the light. So knowing him is a passage into an alternative knowing. Uh, he is the true God. Knowing him, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. Uh, that this knowing is a knowing of eternal life. And then, Maisie, the last verse, and I'm not going to talk about this verse, but we'll read it, because actually this verse changes up everything. But we're not going to talk about it. No. You're probably going to say something about it. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Wait till next week. (laughs) He's not said anything in the rest of the book about idols. And so we need to figure out, and I, I think we can, I don't think it's a difficult thing to do, But he's equating, I think, what he said previously to idolatry. And that's what I want to do. I want to spend one more week on John and work that last verse out and say, okay, little children, keep yourself from idols. Why did he end there? You were right, Evan. (laughs) I said only a little bit. <laughs> Wait till next this week. This is the teaser to get you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now that we got you on the edge of your seat, yeah. buy tickets for next week. Yeah. <laughs> well. Oh well. <laughs> if you mess out, your theology may be forever constipated. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, he used to say that in class a lot. Just somebody went to the bathroom. <laughs> yes, clear bowels, constipated mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was going to say something on the last, the other verse. Please say. Well, because I think I was skeptical for a couple of years of uh, your study of philosophy, you know, and understanding how the world does function and be able, being able to understand sin because actually I have no idea where it is in, in Proverbs it says something about oh gosh I have no idea but basically like knowing knowing the truth and being ignorant of, of evil or something like that and also I remember and for some reason, this always stood out in my mind in Worldviews and Ethics. Mr. Curtis talked about like counterfeit versus like real mm. money and how you understand, how you know what counterfeit is because you study the true bill. Mm-hmm. That's, um, you know what the real bill looks like. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you can identify it. Okay, so in my mind, I use that to think, okay, then that's all you need. You don't have to go study all that other stuff, you know? Uh. But, yeah, it doesn't make sense if you can't, if you're, like what you're saying, unless someone tells you that, no, Christianity is a completely different way of understanding, and you're not going to be able to, you're trying to understand Christianity within a certain mind frame which is like a Western, you know, like a modern 
-hmm. way of understanding. And so you're never, you know, it's like you're basically never going to get anywhere. You're never going to understand the truth because it's, it's kind of like it comes from outside of that, mm -hmm. you know. So I don't know what my point is, but it took me a while to even realize that. It's yeah. even important to understand that there are two ways to function, you know. And it's like legitimately you can trace the way of un of thinking and understanding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, uh, let me see if I can twist the yeah. counterfeit money thing around. Yeah. Because the, the danger is that uh, if you read the Bible to only read about the genuine article, and you're, we're talking the illustration of money, you won't understand that you're talking about even within the domain of finance. Yeah. In other words, I think that's what happens when we, uh, if we're unable to name the idols, we're unable to see how Christ is the truth over against the lie, is we imagine that we're apprehending something in a vacuum. Hmm. Uh, but no, we, we're never in a vacuum. We, we're always coming from some place. And the, uh, my trust in Scripture is such that the Bible always addresses the place from whence we came. And if we can't recognize that, and we're just reading the Bible as if that's enough, and, and it is enough, but we need to recognize the context in which it's given. So it's given to us, here is the counterfeit in John. Here are these false teachers. What's happening in John is what's happening throughout. Uh, it's always describing the realm of truth over and against the realm of a lie within the, the frame of reference of eternal life. And so uh, I, I think that what tends to happen in fundamentalism or conservatism is we imagine that there's some magical thing that happens in reading scripture that in some way we're informed about a truth but we don't know to what that truth applies or how we're to make a departure from falsehood having known the truth and so that's the way that was that's my use of philosophy is just a handy articulation of what happens in many realms Did that convey, was that? Yeah. Okay. Evan, you had a deep thought that you're about to give birth to. I, well, I don't know. I, I don't think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. Let that baby come. Is it? That's what I was thinking about. <laughs> the other day someone tried to... <laughs> that was the crazy they were talking. <laughs> they were talking to me about ethics and morals or whatever, and they said something, I don't know. I, I just like... I was just saying a statement to kind of throw into their conversation that they were, like, two people were having this conversation about ethics and morals. And, then, and I was like, you know, the Bible is an ethic, and I was just like, you know, trying to get into the conversation or whatever, and the guy was like, no, the Bible's immoral. It's a morality. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, so you're just saying you want to live in this system and pretend like this is just something you adhere to already in the system that you're in. Like, like here you are, like, in whatever world you're living in, and you're just going to say, oh, we can still live in this world, and we can just apply things from this Bible to, you exactly. know, because we're doing good and whatever. And so that's what this is reminding me of. Like, actually, we have to, we have to look at what we're doing and kind of step back for a minute and say, oh, like, this over here, this system is, like, the entirety of truth, and so now I have to I have to step into that mm -hmm. and abandon this thing, mm -hmm. so that I can address this thing where other people are stuck. You know, right? And um, so that's what I was thinking. Yeah, that that's that was the way I when uh, uh, you know I was trying to that in teaching biblical ethics, you don't begin with a frame of reference in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, and unfortunately, that's the way Christians imagine that biblical ethics work oh it's just parallel to other ethics now if you get this thing right you'll understand this is repulsive 
This is unworkable. This is impractical. This cannot be done. Until you see that, that from the frame of reference of the world, the ethic of Christianity is a strange world indeed. I don't think you've gotten it. That, you know, this is the Sermon on the Mount taken seriously. So that's the idea. No, we begin, and I think that's what the idea here, that the knowing of eternal life, it's in a completely different system. And I'm not, you know, I don't mean, I don't want to, John is just creating this, this stark contrast. And I think that's the, I think that gets the truth.